Previously on the Nature of My Game podcast. You see an email. It says, join us for a night at the opera. And you know, this is an email from an organization that you have been recruited to, an organization you've been a part of for a few years now, that you know only as the program. I called Jessica, who is my uh, ex-girlfriend and the mother of my daughter, Olive, and... I let her know that I'm going to be out of town for a few days. Definitely goes to visit her mother as she does every day and um, lets her know that she probably won't be visiting for a few days. I take a second to uh, to send a text to my to my ex-wife, uh, Audrey, just a picture of the, the sun sunrise that I took on the beach this morning. In a small town in Death Valley called Hellbend, there were two deaths recently. The details were flagged to us. I'm, I'm not sure why, uh, but my boss wants us to look into this. I guess my only question, I no offense to Ben, but is there a reason we, we need a journalist with us? Someone to you know possibly draw attention to, to what we're getting into? I'm not an agent, but I believe I can hold my own. I'll be honest, I'm a little nervous about this case. It's a small town. People talk, obviously, not to mention that it's an area ripe with people to willing to believe any sort of conspiracy theory. We need to keep this quiet. You can't go in on a power trip and God help you if the media gets involved. We can't have a media circus on our hands around this case. Sacramento, California, May 8th, 2016. Special Agent Kimberly Trollvane waited until she had hung up the phone with Slotkin before audibly swearing louder than she meant to. That bastard is sticking his nose where it doesn't belong. God damn it, why did he choose this case to use as a springboard? Shit. That last word was the one she said out loud. But taking a moment to compose herself, she stood up and walked past some of her other colleagues at the Sacramento branch of the FBI. A few briefly looked up from their work as she went by. Without acknowledging the looks, Trollvane went directly over to a desk across the room and tapped the occupant, a man in his 40s with gray hair and green eyes, on the shoulder. Hey, uh, Clark, I'm gonna go take a smoke. Wanna join? Special Agent Clark Grunberg nodded and stood up, reaching into his pocket as he did. He took out his cell phone, tossed it on the desk, and the two of them made their way outside. Trollvane tried to start talking as soon as the door closed behind them, but Grunberg stopped her. Wait a sec, let's get a bit farther away from the building. They walked around the back and over by a dumpster. Okay, go ahead. I convinced Slotkin that he needed someone more subtle than his normal bull-in-a-china-shop agents to work the case, and that's about all they've got down there in Bakersfield, so he agreed to bring on Marks and Lau. But damn it if he isn't going to make this harder than it needs to be. He has ambition, Clark, and I think he wants to use this case as his big break. Grenberg smiled a condescending smile. Kim, don't worry so much. We'll be fine. I doubt there's much to this one anyway. I'm not even totally sure myself why the program wants it looked into. Slotkin won't be an issue. He's not smart enough to make himself an issue. That's what worries me, Clark. We've got to keep his nose out of things, but still make him feel like he's in control. Otherwise, he's going to cause trouble until he feels like he's in charge. She hated when he was like this. Too cavalier, too self-assured. He thought she was being paranoid, but a little paranoia went a long way in the program. He didn't get that. Grunberg reached over and clapped her on the shoulder. I'll let the director know about your concerns, and that we're going to brief Mark, Slough, and McKissick ASAP. Don't worry, Kim, this will all be fine. With that, he turned and started walking back across the parking lot toward the door. Trollvane stayed behind and actually pulled out a cigarette. She lit it and took a heavy puff, trying to calm her nerves. Stop the incursion. That was priority number one. He knew it, and so did she. Everything else came after stopping the incursion. And Kimberly Trollvane would make sure that priority was taken care of. She'd bring down Grunberg and Slotkin, Lau, Marks, McKissick, the director of the program himself, and even the entire town of Hellbend if she had to. She'd stop the incursion, no matter the cost.
So as I was preparing to uh, run this game, I was looking up places that are relevant in the scenario, Independence, California, uh, Furnace Creek, California, and realized that like just a couple of months ago, I was very close to some of these places because I went backpacking with my uncle and cousins in Kings Canyon National Park, which Independence is just to the east of Kings Canyon National Park. Um, have any of you ever been to this area or separately, have any of you ever been backpacking? It's a definite not for me. Just in this last month, I think I've done both of those. So that sounds great. <laughs> Where were you? Uh, I was backpacking slash, I guess, just like hiking and camping. I don't know if when you combine hiking and camping, if that becomes backpacking. Um, <laughs> but if we assume it is, then I, we were uh, in the Grand Canyon last month, um, backpacking, hiking, whatever, through there. Uh, and then also ended up driving in the, the southwest up through like Death Valley and all that. Nice. I mean, it certainly feels like I, I feel like I have a very clear picture of about like what some of these places look like. It, it feels like very distinct in my mind, like driving through the mountains and everything being hot and dry and the sun like beating down through the windshield and there being no way to like escape it at all. Yeah. I will say I've not been camping. But I was, as I was looking up the uh, creatures that live in Death Valley, all the scorpions, when I lived in Tanzania, I did live in like a desert region and there were tons of scorpions. So I guess I can picture having lived in the desert. I can picture it and also just picture like how, uh, just how creepy and uh, isolated it is. Um, like driving through there yeah you'll see the signs on the road are just like next gas 100 miles and then you get to that gas and then you leave and it says next gas 100 miles and it's just constantly like that for hours so have you been to the gas and sip <laughs> some <laughs> iteration <good>. of it <laughs> I, i'm sure i've been to some iteration of it i remember we stopped at a, a gas station in uh uh what was it called uh Tinopa. Nevada, I think. Tonopah, I know Tonopah, yes. Tonopah, yeah, that's what it is. There's like this creepy clown motel. Yes, the Is go like ahead, supposedly, yeah, I, I don't know much more about it. It's like supposedly kind of famous and people will like travel to stay there because it's supposedly haunted by clowns. Um, so that's what I'm picturing as we are, as we're doing this. So the organization that I work, that's is so funny, the organization that I work for in real life, uh, we do education leadership consulting, and we used to do work in Tonopah, Nevada. And the first time they went there, they didn't know anything about the clown motel and stayed there. Oh, and refused to ever <laughs> stay at the clown that's motel crazy. again. <laughs> uh, that's that's insane. Uh, also, I, if you told me that Tonopah had a school uh, while I was driving through there, I would have thought you were lying. So. Um, good to hear that one. there's some education going on there. <laughs> one school. I'm bummed that you're like our handler and not <laughs> also on the team if you've been there and survived <laughs> yeah. the clown motel. <laughs> <laughs> I have not been to the clown motel. Bex, have you ever uh, been to this region or been backpacking? I have been camping. Um, so yes, I, su I suppose backpacking, um, a bit cause I've done hiking as well. Um, I've never been to Tonopah or Death Valley or Furnace Creek or anywhere uh, anywhere around there. The only place actually in California that I've ever been is Los Angeles. So very different vibes, um, way out of my element out here. There are no gas and sips in, uh, in LA, I, I don't think. <laughs> Not that I saw. All right. So um, I think that's a good note to get started on. So uh, when we left, all three of our agents, Sunny... Portia and Ben were heading to Hellbend, California, uh, because they've all been assigned as part of Delta Green or the program to investigate two murders that happened in this small, tiny town of Hellbend. And uh, Ben is a New York Times reporter um, who was given a lead from his editor and then was contacted by Delta Green to go out and check out these murders. Uh, meanwhile, Portia and Sonny are 
they are both being contracted. They are they're agents from um, the the DIA and the CIA, respectively, but have been contracted by the FBI and so are official officially the the investigators on this case, but have been instructed that they should uh, tread lightly and try not to make too many waves in town, lest lest the media get wind of uh, such a strange occurrence of two deaths by similar means happening in a popul- in a town with a population of 84 people uh, over the course of six weeks. And so Portia and Ben, sorry, Portia and Sonny are on their way out to Independence, California, which is the county seat of Inyo County, where the Inyo County Sheriff's Department uh, has its headquarters to uh, to talk with the, the sheriff and the sheriff's deputy and the coroner there who are all working on this case. Ben is driving directly to Hellbend and uh, I think plans on talking to some of the locals to see uh, what kind of information he can gather there. Uh, but right, bef- right when we ended last time, Sonny, uh, you got a voicemail from your ex-wife. Uh, you had sent her a text that morning, um, a picture of a, su- of a sunrise, and uh, she must have called you when you didn't have service because when you pulled your phone back out, there was a voicemail. And she let you know that she was going to be in San Diego, uh, which is where you live, but not where you are now, uh, and wondered if you wanted to meet up for breakfast. Yeah, a bit um, bit caught off guard, you could say, a bit uh, surprised, pleasantly surprised to just to, I don't know, just to hear Audrey's voice. We, we haven't really um, communicated that way very much in the last year, I would say. It's a lot of uh, not a lot of, but when we do talk, it's usually text messages or, or emails or something like that. Yeah, Audrey usually tries to keep her keep her distance a little bit, and and you know I try to keep her at arm's length as well, just with with work and with just what I've what I've been dealing with for the last you know couple of years. And and yeah, but I know that I I'm committed to this. Uh, to this Delta Green assignment and and getting out to to Hellbend, so I don't know for sure if I'll be able to see her, which is pretty disappointing. Um, I don't want to call her and uh, sort of scare her, right? Letting her know that I'm on a field assignment with a, an agency that she doesn't know I'm working with. Um, so I'm just gonna text her back and you know. Just let her know. I'd, I mean, I'd love to see her. Uh, it's it's been a while since we've seen each other in person. Um, but just uh, you know, a, a sort of a logistical uh, CIA uh, meeting that I have to be at be at a you know a few hours out of town going to keep me busy for at least a day or two. But hopefully, uh, I'll be back in San Diego in time to to see her before uh, um, before she leaves. Gotcha. And so you get in the car with uh, with Portia, and you know, in addition to the phone call that you received, you also found out earlier today that you're going to be on this mission with Portia, who is someone that you uh, were you both were at the farm in CIA training together ten or twelve years ago, and you're seeing each other for the first time since then. And so you know, you've got a couple hour drive uh, to independence um what is the what's the conversation like between the two of you yeah i i mean i think at first i feel i feel a little bad um you know i'm a little i don't know my mind's a little jumbled my 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 thoughts are all over the place after getting the voicemail from audrey so a little quiet i think when we get in the car right away and start driving but i i don't know about other delta green agents necessarily but i certainly didn't get into the cia expecting to later begin working with a, you know, a supernatural, uh, you know, unexplainable uh, unit. So I'm intrigued to see, you know, that someone else that I crossed paths with like, you know, 10 years ago is somehow also involved in this. So I think I have a, I don't know if that's exactly where I jump into right away, but I definitely have some questions of, you know, how she got involved in all this. I think I'm, I'm quite comfortable with someone sitting quietly in the car while I also sit quietly in the car. And, you know, part of my skill set would be sitting quietly and waiting until he's ready to be talking and asking questions. So I think I'll kind of do that. 
Um, and maybe once once a question is broached, kind of ask, like, what have your last 10 years been like? You know, where have you been working? What kind of, from what you can tell me without prying too much. Casual sort of colleague catch up, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I was, um, I mean, I've been with the CIA for uh, close to, I don't know, six or seven years, I guess. Uh, just kind of worked my way up after after leaving the farm um, and was stationed mostly in, in Asia, Southeast Asia, um, oh, okay. some time in, uh, in China and, and South Korea, a little bit of time in Cambodia as well. And yeah, I mean, have been out of the field for uh, for almost almost two years now. Uh, oh. Without without going into too much detail, my uh, you can say my last my last assignment didn't go too well. Mm, sorry to hear that. We could have crossed paths earlier. I also spent some time in Southeast Asia, more in the Middle East, but spent some time there as well. And now focused on Yemen. My past year has also been kind of a transition year moving to working more remotely from the Bay Area. But yeah. gotcha. nice to see a friendly face. Not the place I'd expect to see one, but <laughs> I'm sure yeah. that we'll have each other's backs. I, I mean, I certain, certainly hope so. I mean, I don't exactly know what we're, we're getting into here, but I don't know. How did, how did you get, if, you, if you're willing to say, how did you get wrapped up into all this? I've been with Delta Green for some time now. Um, I find it, and you know, it's something that I enjoy the challenge of, for sure. And think I have some experience with, you know, doesn't get to my head too much when we see these supernatural things. I mean, does it like, does it make sense to you? Like, do you, have you been able to explain any of this, like, unexplainable stuff? I'd say... Perhaps I don't spend too much time asking the questions. Can't really stop asking questions. Guess I'm a bit opposite in that. Well, we need all sorts in missions like these. True. Certainly didn't expect to be here when we were on the on the farm together. No, that with that I can I can agree with you there. Had no idea this world was here. So it sounds like the conversation is pretty professional, kind of feels like it's you two are both still kind of feeling each other out a little bit in terms of, you know, it's, it's, even though it's about things that are secret and that not a lot of people know about, it still seems pretty surface level conversation. Does that, is that kind of how you both see it? Yeah, I would say for me, that's intentional. Like I'm, I'm not trying to divulge my inner feelings or thoughts. Yeah, I think, sim- I think similarly, I think I, I don't want to appear too uh, too eager or too uh, too new to all this. Maybe with all my questions, so I'm am am prying and and uh, prodding very delicately. Maybe. And I think when you give me an opportunity to pry, I'm like, no, I'm not going to take it. <laughs> and you're like, oh, the last one didn't go well. I'm like, oh, okay, sorry, <laughs> not going to ask you why. So as uh, as Portia and uh, Sonny are driving to Independence, Ben is driving by himself uh, through the through the desert and mountains of California. You pass by Bakersfield, you pass by Independence, and things are just getting more and more remote. And you arrive in Hellbend, you know, kind of mid-afternoon, you know, around two or three o'clock. And, you know, the buildings are run down. There's, you know, dead grass kind of surrounds the road as you're driving up. Everything seems brown and dull. There's kind of, you know, trash sitting on the side of the road. You pass some houses that clearly are abandoned. Uh, Someone may have lived there in the past, but the windows are broken and, you know, the, the roof is coming off. And, you know, you you get closer to town, you see a sign that says, Welcome to Hellbend, population 84. And you relatively quickly after the sign come up to uh, a gas station. You see, you see off in the distance a little bit as you're pulling up a sign that says gas and sip 
As, and as you get closer, you see aging Coke signs, ancient ads for Brill Cream, and other less memorable products. Everything is, all the paint is washed out by the sun. Everything's falling apart. There are two old gas pumps kind of sitting there in the, in the co- concrete block uh, out front. And there's a younger man. His skin is super sunburned. He's got a beard, brown hair, and like you could only describe them as like hippie dreadlocks, um, like very tangled, a very tangled mess of dreadlocks. Um, and he's just sitting in one of those like wicker chairs um, that he's placed out front uh, in the gas station, just kind of looking around, not really doing much. Um, he, it looks like maybe he has a paperback sitting on his lap, but he's not reading it, um, and just kind of watches you as you uh, as you drive through town. So the first place I'm headed is uh, I got an address online for a Jarvis Green who uh, seems to be the individual who found the first body. And, um, and I'm, I'm driving through town um, on my way to this address that I was given, but um, I, I have this feeling um, kind of in the pit of my stomach that, uh, that maybe this isn't going to be the easiest um, trip in terms of actually finding the information that I'm looking for. So you, 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 now that you're in town, you look a little closer at the address, and it actually seems to be right where the gas and sip is. Um, and you look a little more closely at the gas and sip, and you now see that the building is, it looks like it's two stories, and actually maybe was a house at some point, which you didn't notice at first. Um, but maybe it was a house that someone put in two gas pumps outside of. But there's, there's like, you know, the roof of the building looks more like a residential, uh, a residential home. Um, the siding kind of looks, uh, kind of looks like a house. And yeah, so you, you actually think that, that this, the gas and sip is the address that you have. Yeah. So I, so I take a closer look and, you know, originally I, I'm looking for, you know, some, I, I think I'm looking for, you know, a, a house, you know, with a, with a lawn and a fence, um, you know, in, in some neighborhood. But um, but upon closer inspection, I, I do realize that this uh, gas station actually seems to be the address that I'm looking for. So I uh, I pull in um, and I've I've got um, you know a l- little over half a tank of gas. So I'm I'm I don't need gas, but um, but I decide I'm gonna uh, fill up just so that I can. Um, make some conversation with this uh, this individual that's here at the station. Sounds good. So if you all want to look um, at roll 20 real quick, I can show you a picture of what this guy looks like. All right. So so that's the person that you see um, and you pull up and you uh, get out of your car and he, uh, he just kind of like nods his head and says, Hey there, what can I help you with? Hi, um, in town for a couple days and, uh, uh, need to to get some gas. Um, do you happen to sell water by chance? Yeah, we've uh, we got some water inside. Uh, you're in town. What what are you in town for? Well, uh, I'm currently uh, hoping I can get some information about uh, a strange death uh, that seems to have happened in this town um, recently. Well, there were uh, a couple strange deaths that happened. But, uh, okay, yeah, um, I'm gonna, you, you can go ahead and fill up out here. I'll, uh, grab you a couple of waters. I'll, I'll meet you inside. You can pay in there. Thanks. Appreciate that. And so he, uh, he gets up out of his chair. He leaves the paperback sitting in the, in the chair and he, he walks inside. So I, I finish, uh, filling up my tank and I kind of am, am looking around, kind of looking over my shoulder to see, um, you know, if, if I can see anyone else, you know, in my periphery or, or, you know, if there's anyone else maybe in the station. So you, you kind of look around and um, you don't see anybody else. You don't see anybody else within range. There are, there are a couple houses around that maybe look like they're lived in. Um, you know, it wouldn't be surprising that, you know, any, any of the houses that are still 
habitated here are kind of closer to this central area. But you you finish up uh, pumping the gas and you walk over, you take a look down at the chair. It's just a, it's kind of a, an airport novel, you know, something by, by James Patterson or John Grisham or something like that. So once I'm finished filling up, um, I'm, I'm pretty confident at this point that um, that this this guy and myself are, are the only two people around. Um, so I I feel, you know, r- relatively safe, I think. And I um, feel like, you know, we'll probably have some privacy to talk. So I, uh, I follow him inside the station. All right. So you walk in and now you're confident that this was a house at one point. Yeah, th- this room looks like it was once a parlor. Um, but now it's been, it's kind of serving as the the general store portion of the gas and sip. Uh, there's wooden floors, two very large refrigerators that have drinks and some perishable food. There's some military surplus racks that have, you know, potato chips, canned food, some candy, things like that. And the man that you saw before is standing behind a tiny register area that has like one of those 1940s uh, style like cash registers with like the buttons that press all the way down and he it looks like he grabbed uh, two cold bottles of water and has kind of set them on the register and is, is waiting for you when you come in so I kind of survey this um, you know station uh, that, that as you said looks a bit like a like a parlor and I'm a little taken aback because it wasn't uh, it wasn't what I expected from the outside, I was expecting, uh, you know, more of a, uh, you know, more of a convenience store. You know, it seems like it's not uh, not very well lit. And uh, and I go up to the the counter and I, I take out some cash to pay for the waters because I'm. Uh, it, it doesn't appear to be the type of place that uh, accepts credit cards. And uh, and I just asked this guy, uh, you know, by chance, do you do you know a Jarvis Green? He, uh, he kind of gives you, like, a suspicious look when you ask that question. And he says, um, yeah, I'm, I'm Jarvis Green. What do you, uh, how do you know my name? Yes, I, I apologize for not, uh, you know, not coming forward with this sooner, but I, I was given your name, um, because I, I heard that you had found one of these individuals, um, that, that, uh, tragically died out here um, recently. Uh, I'd like to introduce myself. Uh, my name is Ben McKissick, and um, I'm I'm a reporter. Uh, I, I want to know if uh, I could ask you a couple questions about what you saw. Sure. So um, the first time we're going to refer to stats here. Um, if you take a look at your character sheet and tell me what your what is your percentage for persuade? Seventy. All right, so you are a naturally very charming person, um, which serves you obviously very well in these situations. Uh, Something about your persona, uh, the way you interact with people, uh, makes them trust you and makes them likely to kind of go with what you're suggesting. And so he, you know, he, he looks a little suspicious, but when you bring up the fact that he was... Um, that he found one of the bodies, you can see that he like that he like visibly relaxes a little bit. That that's the thing that you've come to talk to him about. And he says, "Oh yeah, you mean um, you mean Clifford Potter? Yeah, I, I was the one that I was the one that found him. He um, he rented the the bobcat that we have. It's it's out back there. Um, and now that you're now that he says that you're kind of remembering that you did see it on as you pulled in there was a bobcat parked out in the back of the gas and sip. He had, uh, yeah he had rented the the bobcat and you know it was getting to be dark and he hadn't brought it back yet and you know I I know that he'd been kind of looking around and digging around the old uh, the old Hunt Electrodynamics plant or at least the ruins of it so. So I went out there to, to see if he was still out there to, to tell him that he needed to bring the bobcat back or that he'd need to rent it for another day. And, well, that's, yeah, that's when I found him. If, if you don't mind me asking, what, uh, what exactly was it that you, that you found when you went out there? Well, I, I saw the bobcat first and, you know, it, what, it wasn't moving or anything like that. I, I didn't see any sign of Clifford at first, but 
you know, I, I pulled up and, and walked over to it and I saw him. He was he was lying next to the next to the bobcat, clearly dead. He had wounds all over him. There was blood splattered up on the bobcat. Uh, it was pretty gruesome. I, I, I'd never seen anything like that before. But I, well, you know, I, I came back and and called the called the sheriff's office and let him know what I saw. Did you tell anyone else other than the sheriff um, about what you found out there? I mean, you know, a few people have asked me about it since then. I, I try, you know, I'd rather not talk about it too much, but a few people have asked, and so you know, I, I told them what I saw. Uh, you know, I, I told my grandpa and he kind of like gestures, like he kind of looks up when he says grandpa. Um, so it makes you think that maybe his grandpa is upstairs. You know, maybe, maybe that's where they live. I told him, but you know, we, we haven't talked about it too much. You know, the police have come around, asked me a couple questions. I didn't have any more information than what I just told you. They gave me the bobcat back. It's pretty gross. I'll be honest. There's still some, still some blood stains and things on there. I couldn't really get it off. Didn't really want to try to. It was a little too much for me. Sure, that's understandable. In your opinion, do you do you think it was some sort of animal that did this to Clifford? You know, I, I hadn't really thought about that. It, I guess, I just assumed that it was something. Maybe he fell off the bobcat, and something happened that way. It didn't. I, I don't know. I, I've I've never seen an animal do something like that to a human. I assumed it was an accident with the with the bobcat, though. I don't know how that would have happened. I don't know how you fall out of one of those things, but that's. I guess I hadn't really thought about it too much. How well did you know Clifford? I know you mentioned that he had uh, he'd rented this this bobcat from you, and you knew that he'd been um, you know out there by the. Uh, by the old hunt plant, and he was he was digging around. Yeah, I, I knew him okay. He he came around here pretty often. You know, same as same as most folks who live in this area. You know, they who pick up their mail here. That's where all the mail is delivered, and come get food as they need it. But you know, he uh, he'd been spending a decent amount of time around here, uh, interviewing interviewing my grandpa actually. I don't know. He he'd taken, like I said, he had taken interest in the in the the old hunt plant. He, I think he I think he found some copper pipes or something down there that he thought was valuable. So he'd been spending a lot of time down there. But well, my my grandpa used to work at the at the plant. He he worked for the the owner, and uh, so I, I guess they were talking about that. He's been coming here, you know, pretty frequently. Uh, he goes up there with his tape recorder and has conversations with my grand my grandpa about what it was like working at the plant. Is your is your grandfather here now? I'd I'd love to speak with him if he's around. Well he he's here, but this is usually his nap time. Could I could you come back an, another time? I'll, I'll I'll talk to him about it, see if he's if he's willing and uh you could you could talk to him then, would that be okay? Yeah, yeah, that'd be fine. you you said you'd be around for a few days, right? Yes. Yeah, if if you want to just if you want to swing back uh, tomorrow morning or something like that, I, I can I can tell you when a good time would be. Absolutely, I'll do that. He's he's ninety eight years old, so you know I, I don't want to I don't want to push him too much. I completely understand. Thank you for the waters. No problem. And so do you uh, do you pay and, and head out? Yeah. All right. So um, so meanwhile, Portia and Sunny. Uh, after about two hours, arrive in Independence, California, which is not a big place, uh, but compared to Hellbend, is uh, a thriving metropolis. And, you know, you follow the directions to the sheriff's office. You find it very easily. Uh, it's well-labeled. And actually, you see that the coroner has an office right across the street also. So we bypass, like, do we drive past the gas and sip? No, so independ- Independence is still a couple hours outside of Hellbend. Um, so you're oh. not there yet. Oh, right. Okay, this is the county seat, which is in Death Valley? It's not. Hellbend is in the National Park. Independence is not. Oh, okay. So you, you haven't quite reached... You haven't quite reached the National Park, and you're... But you're you're at the... kind Where the sheriff's office and the coroner's office for the county are. Okay. 
So I guess we should discuss if we want to go in together or if we want to divide and conquer. Yeah, I mean, based on what we heard in, in Bakersfield, I mean, Bakersfield was expecting us, right? They were expecting both mm-hmm. of us. So I imagine that independence might also be expecting both of us to show up. There wouldn't be any strange signs of that. So I don't see any problem with that. Yeah, and Slotkin had said, you know, they didn't know an exact time, but that the sheriff's office was expecting you to to stop by there first before heading on to Elbin. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So I think we, we're okay to head on in together. I think the bigger issue might just, you know, be making sure that we're maybe not making uh, a bigger deal out of everything than, than needs to be made, you know. And this is just, a, at least so far, any other ordinary case for us. I was thinking the same. Definitely reassure them that they'll gruesome. You know, these things happen. We've seen it before. We'll take care of it. Conditions out here are tough, so, you know, that could account for any sort of things that seem strange, but are not. Exactly, exactly. Do we want to head into the sheriff's office before the coroner's? Yeah, I think that sounds good. Sure. All right, so you walk in the doors, and, you know, there's, there's just kind of a... A reception area, you know, nothing, nothing terribly special, and uh, a police officer in uniform stands up to greet you. He's wearing, you know, one of those like wide-brimmed sheriff's hats, and you know, he's he's pretty tall, strong-looking, uh, mid-forties, brown hair, blue eyes, and he he walks over and says, uh, "Are you two the uh, the agents from the FBI?" We are, Agent Marks. We are indeed, yeah, Agent uh, Sonny Lauer. All right, and he uh, he comes over and shakes your shakes both of your hands and says, "It's nice to meet you. I'm uh, Sheriff Mann, Sheriff Alfred Mann, I'm the I'm the head sheriff here in Inyo County. Uh, thanks for coming out. Uh, we don't really deal with a lot of this a lot of this out here. We don't we don't deal with a lot of murder cases. So we uh, we appreciate the FBI's assistance. Certainly, of course. That's that's why we're here. So, Sheriff Mann, is there a place we can sit and talk? You know, we'd really like to get down to business, hear what you have to share with us, and see, you know, how we can get this straightened out. Yeah, absolutely. Let me let me grab uh, Lucas. Uh, Lucas! Lucas! He shouts over his shoulder, um, and a, a younger sheriff comes out of the back room. He's got a, a cup of coffee in his hand. Blonde hair, also pretty, pretty big, well-built guy, uh, green eyes. And Sheriff Mann says, Lucas, this is... Uh, this is Agent Marks, Agent Lau from the FBI. Uh, they'll be uh, here to assist on the case. Why don't we uh, go into the conference room and we can chat? Uh, what do the two of you have for Hume Int? 60. I have 70. All right, so both of you are very good at kind of reading people. And you can both tell Sheriff Mann seems genuinely pleased that you are here to support. Deputy Andrazi seems less enthused by your presence here. Um, and, you know, I think you both would call to mind the stereotypical but also probably true reputation that, you know, local police don't always like it when the FBI claims jurisdiction over a case that they feel like should be theirs. Um, and so it might be something like that going on with Deputy Andrazi. But you, uh, you make your way into uh, into the conference room, and Sheriff Mann shares with you a couple of case files for the case and uh, gives you a chance to look them over. Um, if I can direct your attention once again to, uh, to roll 20, I'm going to share with you kind of a summary of what you know about the two victims uh, from the case files. So, uh, yeah, you see from the case files, uh, Clifford Potter was a 68-year-old white man, and uh, Sheriff Mann is kind of talking over the files as you're looking at them. Um, he's a retired steel worker, died on March 5th sometime in the evening between, between 6 and 9 p.m. He was discovered by Jarvis Green about two and a half miles north of Hellbend, uh, and the cause of death the coroner ruled as blunt and cutting trauma. Uh, meanwhile, Lucille Mayer was a 36-year-old white female. Uh, she was a sculptor. Uh, she died sometime between April 24th and May 8th, which is when her body was found uh, by Deputy Andrazi, who's the, the deputy that's sitting in there with you. 
Um, he says that he was out in the desert kind of doing a little bit of a patrol and saw uh, buzzards kind of flying overhead and picking at something. And so he went out and looked and found her. She was two miles outside of Hellbend uh, to the southeast, uh, but also died uh, from blunt and cutting trauma, according to the coroner. Uh, and so it was the similarity in the in the wounds that made the coroner um, reclassify Potter's death as a possible homicide and classify Mayer's death as a homicide as well, or a possible homicide as well. Got it. Yeah, we appreciate the uh, the information here. I think my my first question just seems to be like a pretty small, close knit community there. I don't know how close you guys are with the uh, with the town. I know you're a couple hours away, but Anything else you've heard about um, about Clifford Potter and Lucille Mayer? Just the maybe the kind of people they were, how they fit into the community a bit? Yeah, so um, Andrazi speaks up. He tells you that he was, or that he is stationed normally at the Furnace Creek Sheriff's Station, which is much closer to Hellbend. Um, you know, he works, he works the day shift out at the Furnace Creek office. Um, and so he spends more time in Hellbend that, than Sheriff Mann would. Um, and it says he knows the people pretty well. You know, he says Clifford Potter had, you know, been in been in Hellbend for a while. He was pretty well liked, uh, pretty quiet. Didn't didn't spend a lot of time with any of the other locals. You know, he he drank, but not really enough to to bother anyone. Um, you know, he they never had any issues with him or you know drunkenness or anything like that. Um, he knows that Potter had been going out to the the old Hunt plant. Uh, or at least the ruins of the old hunt plant. Recently, he thought there was some scrap metal that was out there that he was collecting to, to, to try to sell. He says, you know, it was a little strange that he was spending time out there because a lot of the locals really try to avoid the hunt plant for whatever reason. Um, you know, it's not the safest place to go walking around anyway. There's rubble and kind of old electronic equipment and there's a fence around it. But, you know, not not a fence that's going to keep anybody out, but a, but a fence... Uh, so people really just, they don't really go out there. And yeah, he, uh, he was a, Potter was really a, a guy that kept to himself most of the time. Lucille Mayer is, was a sculptor. Um, he says that she was, she was a real city woman, um, and says that she, she lived in Los Angeles before moving to, uh, before moving to Hellbend, said she moved a couple years ago, um, because her, her partner, who she had met in L.A., uh, Emily Warren, uh, lived in Hellbend, and they, they moved in together a couple, of, a couple of years ago. And they were super friendly. Everybody around the town liked both, liked both of them. And, you know, it was, it was Emily Warren who reported Lucille missing the, the night that everyone assumed she disappeared. She had gone out to collect some driftwood because recently she had been doing a sculpture series using some of the driftwood um, around Hellbend. But her, her partner, Emily, said that she she never ventured out very, very far other than just the just kind of like the edges of town, never, ever went into the desert. She was not a risk taker um, and didn't like venturing too far away from town and that she she didn't come back. It, it had gotten dark and she hadn't come back yet. And so she called the police and, and Andrazi said that they organized a search party. He was part of the search party, but they focused their attention really on kind of the area close to Hellbend because, uh, you know, Ms. Warren had said that she didn't like venturing further out there. And so he was surprised to find her body almost two miles into the desert uh, when he found her a few weeks later. And she was found, did she take a car to find this driftwood or she had gone out on foot? Yeah, she, her, uh, her partner said that she always went out on foot, you know, because she was staying so close. Nothing was too far away. She had, yeah, she had gone out on foot. Other than it being, you know, an unusual place for Lucille to be, uh, would that be an unusual place for, for any person to be, you know, that far out? There was nothing out there that anyone would go out to see. You know, if somebody, for some reason, wanted to hike out into the desert or something like that, maybe they would do that. But there, uh, Andrazi can't think of any reason why she would have been where she was. You know, Potter was also about that far out, but he was specifically heading to the plant. But there was nothing kind of around where uh, where Lucille Mayer was found. And it looks in the notes like she was in a different area of town. She was nowhere near the hunt 
site, correct? That's correct. The hunt site is to the north. Uh, she was she was more to the south. See that in the notes. Hmm. And Chair Fandrazi, you were the one that found Lucio's body, correct? Uh, yes, sir. That's correct. When you when you found her, did you see anything else unusual out there? Anything uh, anything out of place or of note? I'll be honest, sir. I I was a little more focused on the state of her body. Uh, you know, it, it. I think she had been out there. You know, if she if she was killed around the night that she disappeared, she had been out there a couple of weeks, and the the animals and the birds had really done some work on her. It was pretty gruesome. I I I, I, I called for backup, and I, I'll be honest, I didn't look around too much. Sure, sure. No, I completely understand. And Deputy Andrazi, I would like to hear from you. Of course, we will go out and look at the site ourselves, but if you could just set the scene for us a little bit more and explain uh, exactly what it is that you saw. I know it might be difficult, but it would really help us to be as thorough as possible in the investigation. Sure. So I was out in the desert doing a bit of a patrol. It's part of our responsibility as, as sheriffs in that area is just, you know, make sure make sure nothing's going on out there. And... I saw some buzzards circling ahead, circling overhead. So I, I went out to take a look. I, I found her body beneath a, a rock shelter in a in a gully nearby. Uh, though, like I said, there wasn't much of her left to left to look at. The the animals and the birds had gotten to her, but I could see that there was definitely some definitely some trauma outside of the of what had been done to her after her after her death. Uh, portions of her skeleton were missing. And honestly, it, at first glance, it looked like they had been cut off in some way. Uh, but I, I didn't, I didn't. Again, I, I, I didn't look too closely. I, I know, I know that Doctor White, the coroner, identified her by her teeth. But I, I, I felt pretty confident I knew who it was, even though I, I didn't recognize her out there. And and you said she was beneath a rock shelter. I don't want to conjecture too much. We need a lot more information to be gathered, but. Could you imagine that if someone were in distress, they would try to seek shelter under this, or...? Sure, it, it would be a fine place to take shelter if, if you needed to take shelter, yes. Hmm. And from what you know about Clifford, again, I know that it seems like we're surmising there's a link between the two. Was, was he similarly in a sheltering position, do you know? I, I, didn't, I didn't see the body... Uh, of Mr. Potter, but I believe that I believe that uh, that Dr. White has has photos from the scene. He, he, I'm sure he'd be happy to show them to you. His, I took photos of Ms. Mayer's body, but but uh, Dr. White's team took the crime scene photos from the first. Okay, yeah, we'll definitely want to see those again. Just thinking back to the day and the moment when you found her, were there any signs of struggle around or any other? you know, things outside of the sand and the land around. There wasn't enough of her left to show any signs of struggle. It was... Okay. There, there, I, I, can't, I can't imagine that I would have been able to figure anything out from that. No footprints, no drag marks, anything like that? Not that I saw, no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sheriff Andrade, we appreciate your help. I'm sure it's tough to imagine those things again. Just taking a step back, I guess, wondering if Anything, uh, you know, in the last, you know, couple months or so, or even, you know, a couple months before that, anything, anything weird or unusual been happening around, around the town, around Hellbent? Anything uh, of note? He, uh, he stops to think for a second and then shakes his head and says, not, not anything that I can think of. It, not a lot happens out here and in our part of the world. It's pretty quiet life, pretty slow life. Sure, sure. Okay. Well, I mean, if anything comes to mind, you know, anything, uh, anything a bit unusual or anything that just caught your eye, feel free to, to let us know. We'd appreciate it. I'll do that. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll be around. And when he says that, he like kind of looks at you both pointedly, you know, you, you both kind of get the sense that he's trying to, to let you know that he's, that just because you're here and you have jurisdiction doesn't mean that he's just gonna kind of move away into the background. Can I actually, before you go, again, we're so glad that you'll be around. That'll be immensely helpful. I have one more question. Um, what was the reaction in town after Clifford Potter's death? Were people looking into it? What, you know, were, did it become something that people were investigating on their own? 
No, not as far as I know. I, I think everyone assumed, as the coroner had said, that it was an unfortunate accident with the bobcat that he had been using. Okay. Thank you so much. We'll be in touch. One, one, one last question before uh, before we head out, maybe. Can you just tell us a bit more about this uh, this hunt plant that, that we've been hearing about? Maybe what it, what it used to be, kind of uh, what the, the state of it is now, if you, if you know anything about that. So at this point, Sheriff Mann takes back over uh, and says, well, I, I think I can tell you a little bit about the hunt plan. I'm, I'm a little older. I, I, I've, I've been around a little longer than Deputy Andrazi, though I, I certainly wasn't around when, when it was in operation, but I, I can tell you a little bit about it. So uh, a man named Arthur Hunt uh, was, the, was the founder and owner of Hunt Electrodynamics. He, I think he was from somewhere in the Midwest, Ohio or Illinois or somewhere like that. But he uh, he had a lot of success, I think, in the 30s and 40s. He was ahead of his time with some of his technology and, and uh, Hunt Electrodynamics was uh, very successful. They made a lot of money in, in the World War, I believe. And so, you know, by the late 40s, they were a, they were a thriving business. And Hellbend, as far as I understand, really survived because of Hunt Electrodynamics. And I think everyone believed that it was a little strange that that Arthur Hunt, you know, they had offices in LA and in New York, but he continued to live and work out of Hellbend and out of the out of the plant that was here. And his story ends uh, about as abruptly as the plant story did sometime in the early 50s, I think. 1952 or something, he actually, he died in the explosion that brought down the plant. It, it was completely destroyed. He was inside and died. And now the plant is, as the explosion left it, uh, you know, almost 60 years ago, it's mostly rubble. There's some old electronics equipment scattered around. There's a fence that has been kind of, you know, there are parts missing from it now, but it, it lays in waste. The The company moved out of here and, you know, you may have heard of it, it it's still operational as Hunt Electronics, but Hellbend was never the same and Hunt Electrodynamics never returned to Hellbend. And that is where we are going to end our story for today. This podcast was published by Arrangement with the Delta Green Partnership. The intellectual property known as Delta Green is a trademark and copyright owned by the Delta Green Partnership, who has licensed its use here. The scenario Future Perfect is copyright Dennis Detwiller, and the contents of this podcast are copyright Nature of My Game podcast, accepting those elements that are the components of the Delta Green intellectual property. Our intro music was composed and produced by Jean-Luc Bouchard. You can find more information about the Nature of My Game podcast at NOMG Podcast on Twitter and Instagram or at NOMGPodcast.com.